morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. I'm just going to go ahead and pray right out the gate, right? Normally we hit this like four paragraphs down. I'm not making you wait this morning. I could use some prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you that you are the God who builds your church. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who stoops low and comes near and draws near. I ask that you would continue to do that this morning. I know that your presence is in this place because we are gathered in your name. I know that you're here. So Lord, now would you speak through your word? Would you give us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to each one of us this morning? Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your covering over us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning again to all of you in the room today. I love when I get to look out over all of you and see who came, who showed up, who's in church this morning. Thank you guys for making it here today. I've got some friends visiting that I haven't seen in a long time, so if I'm a little freaked out, it's because my friends are here, y'all. My friends are here. Really excited. Excited. And uh, yeah, to welcome to those of you joining us online as well. I've said it many times before, but my in-laws are faithful online attenders. Good morning to both of you if you're watching right now. Uh, my in-laws were here visiting in person last weekend, which was pretty cool. They sat right over there at this service. And my in-laws came in town last week so that my husband and I could get away for our 21st wedding anniversary. 21 years. <laughs> we actually met in the year 2000, and from the first moment I laid eyes on Jedediah, I knew that he was special and he was different, and I was going to have to do whatever it took to make him mine. I had to be bold because I knew, I knew I had some competition. There was a friend of mine who was kind of eyeing Jedediah Gaffron at the time, and I had to move fast, I had to be bold, I had to beat her to the punch, all right? So I developed a plan. I like a good plan. First, I found out which dorm room was his. That was easy. That was the easy part. But then I had to get cute. I had to take this seriously. I wanted to look nice to get his attention which back then would have meant wearing my nicest pair of overalls. <laughs> back then, I was something of a cross between a punk rocker and a hippie hybrid. So I braided my hair long on both sides, and I tied my hair up in a little bandana, looking cute, maybe had some hoop earrings, and I definitely put on some perfume. My favorite perfume at the time was actually called Love Spell. Love spell. And this was, no, this was no cute little one pump fancy perfume. This was a bottle of body spray. So you sprayed that stuff everywhere until you were a cloud of love spell. I wanted him to smell me coming down the hall. So now I'm looking cute and I'm smelling good. My son hates this right now. I'm looking good. <laughs> smelling good. And I waited outside that dorm room door until I knew he was asleep, looking cute, looking fresh, right when I realized he had gone to bed when he, when he turned off that NBA 2K video game. I went in, I went in, and I stood at the foot of his bed, and I uncovered his feet. 
And right then he woke up. He was startled awake. Do you know what he said to me? He said, get out of my room before I call the police, which is exactly what he would have said if any part of that story were true. It's not true. I made, I made most of it up, most of it up. Um, I did have competition in those early days. Uh, Heather, if you're watching, 21 years. <laughs> Heather and I are still very good friends, by the way. Hello, Heather. Uh, and it is true that I did wear overalls and a bandana almost every day, and I still love my love spell. Let's be real. Um, but no, I did not sneak into Jedediah's room and uncover his feet because that would have been very bizarre. But as we'll see in today's text, that strategy worked out pretty well for Ruth. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. That's page 226 if you're using the house Bible. And this is the third week in our series that's been all about the book of Ruth. And I'll have to admit, I've, I've never taken as deep of a dive into this little book as I have over the past couple of weeks since we've been talking about it as a church. Because I think for most of my life, I sort of assumed that I knew everything I needed to know about the story of Ruth. As a kid growing up in church hearing this story, I thought that the lesson was, be loyal, be like Ruth. Don't, don't cut and run when things get tough. Be a real one, be like Ruth. And always be loyal to your mother-in-law. And if you do, God will bless you. I thought the story was about loyalty, and, and it is. It's a story about loyalty. Later in life, I picked up on how the author describes Ruth's work ethic. We read about this last week in chapter 2. Ruth was determined to make a life both for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. So she worked hard all day, gathering grain in the fields. And she only took one break. And so to me... The moral of the story became, be a hard worker. Be like Ruth. Work hard with determination, and if you do, the Lord will bless you. Well, then as I got even older, the book of Ruth was presented to me often as a, as a love story, right? Like a Hallmark movie. And especially among women, this became kind of all about how to find God's perfect match for you. I would hear it a lot at women's conferences or in different church circles, women going around talking about, I got to find my Boaz. I know he's out there waiting for me. I got to find my Boaz. And this is a love story. It is. But I don't think it's that kind of love story. Because as we've seen over the past two weeks, the story of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi is really about that fourth unseen character. Ruth is a story that points us back to God. Yes, it is a love story with themes of loyalty and hard work and determination, but it's God's love story. It describes his loyalty to his people, his work behind the scenes, and his love and kindness, love for the foreigner, love for the widow, and ultimately love for all mankind. Two weeks ago, Barry kicked off this series by asking the question, where is God when it seems all hope is lost? In chapter one, both Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, they find themselves widowed and destitute. And with no child to carry on the family name, these two vulnerable women were facing a very dismal and uncertain future. 
That's where chapter 1 ended. It ended in uncertainty. Where is God when all hope seems to be lost? And Barry invited us in that first week to really lean into those questions of where is God. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. He said, go ahead and shake your fist at God. Lean into that relationship. But as you do, be confident that he is working, even if you can't see it. And last week, Pastor Tim gave us examples of exactly that, of God working on behalf of his children, even while his children were unaware. In chapter 2, we could see clearly that God, the fourth character in the story, had been busy at work all along, laying the groundwork for what would ultimately take Ruth and Naomi's tragic situation, horrible situation, and redeem it for good. Because it was God who demanded generosity, demanded generosity toward foreigners and toward widows. It was God who made the rules for harvesting that would provide for foreigners and widows like Naomi and Ruth. Because God cares. He cares. And it was God who divinely led Ruth to the field of Boaz. Of all the fields she could have chosen, he led her to the one man who had the power to save her life, to redeem her life. And that's where we left off in chapter two. Ruth is working hard. She's gathering grain in Boaz's field. And Boaz is showing her extraordinary favor. He's going out of his way to bless her, making sure that that she and her mother-in-law have plenty to eat. He even prays a prayer of blessing over Ruth. He says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So this is where we pick up the story today in chapter 3. Things are looking pretty good for Ruth, but Naomi desires something more permanent for her beloved daughter-in-law. So read along with me, Ruth chapter 3. We're going to start at the beginning, verse 1. One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter... It's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. I like the way the Message Bible translates this verse. It says, my dear daughter, isn't it about time I arranged a good home for you so you can have a happy life? In the ancient world, it was customary for parents to arrange marriages for their children, and Naomi knew that she was all that Ruth had left. And so she felt this this motherly duty to find a suitable household and a suitable husband for her widowed daughter-in-law. Naomi wanted to see that Ruth was settled and protected and provided for because it was one thing for Ruth, the widowed Moabite foreigner, to be hanging out in Bethlehem alongside hometown girl Naomi. But if anything were to happen to Naomi, It would leave Ruth alone to fend for herself in a foreign land, and that would be a very dangerous situation for an already vulnerable woman. Naomi knew that the only way to ensure that Ruth was cared for was to find her a husband who could ensure her safety and her community standing, her security. And so, it just so happened, Naomi already had somebody in mind. She says down in verse 2, Naomi says, Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. 
take a bath and put on perfume and, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there, and he will tell you what to do. Can't you just hear a mother-in-law? He will tell you what to do. And I love what Ruth says. Ruth, her response is simple. I will do everything you say. Now, we got to talk about Naomi for a minute because Naomi is a woman with a plan. She's got a plan. She knew exactly where Boaz would be that night and exactly what he would be doing. He would be winnowing barley in the evening. So she tells her daughter-in-law, go take a bath, put on perfume, and, and wear your good clothes. Because it's more than likely that in addition to not smelling good or looking good from working all day in a field in a pre-deodorant world, it's more than likely that she would also have still been wearing her grieving clothes, her mourning clothes. In traditional Judaism, mourners wear garments, clothing that indicates to others that they've suffered a deep loss, that they're grieving. It tells the world outside, hey, give me some space because I'm grieving. And traditionally, this mourning period lasts for an entire year. But Naomi was adamant that it was time for her daughter-in-law to move forward. you got to move on. So she instructed Ruth to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz was working, but not to let him see her. She had to wait there until he finished eating and drinking and, and then take careful notice of which pile he, he laid down in front of. The annual harvest was a joyful, celebratory time. It represented God's abundant provision for his people. So the folks down at the threshing floor weren't just working hard, they were celebrating. They were celebrating the abundant harvest. But celebrating and grieving don't go hand to hand in the Jewish world. It was customary back then, and it still is customary today in many places, for Jewish mourners to abstain from outward displays of, of celebration during their year of mourning. This means Ruth would have had to avoid any kind of celebration altogether. So this could have also been why Naomi told her to put on her good clothes. If you're attempting to sneak into a celebration, you can't go in wearing grieving clothes. You'll stick out like a sore thumb. People will notice you. Naomi insisted that Ruth fly under the radar and watch from a distance until Boaz lay down. And then all she had to do was uncover his feet and lay down. Now, it isn't clear where this idea came from. This isn't a, a known custom of, of the time to just, just go and lay down at some guy's feet. But I do have to admire Ruth's unflinching response to this kind of wild request she just says, I'll do everything you say. This is a woman who is deeply devoted, deeply loyal. She loves her mother-in-law. And apparently she trusts her with her life. So let's keep reading in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. 
Now watch what happens next. Ruth had just executed the plan perfectly. As she said she would, she did everything Naomi told her to do. But what happened next was not part of Naomi's plan. Naomi said Boaz was just going to wake up and tell her what to do. But that isn't what happened. Boaz woke, woke up and he asked her, who are you? Who are you? So Ruth had to go off script a little bit. But what she said was profound. Down in verse 9, she responds to Boaz, I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Boaz would have recognized immediately what she meant by that phrase, spread the, the corner of your covering over me. Because for a man to spread the corner of his garment over a woman meant to claim her as a wife. It still does in many parts of the world. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel 16 that uses that same phrase. This prophecy depicts God, our God, as a loving, compassionate, protective husband who says of himself in Ezekiel 16, 8, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. This is what it meant for Ruth to ask Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. It was essentially a marriage proposal. But she was using Boaz's own words in her appeal. Remember how in chapter 2, Boaz prayed that prayer of blessing over Ruth. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Ruth uses the same word here in her proposal, that word for wings. The word is kanaf, and in its singular form, it does mean coat or garment or covering. But in its plural form, it means wings. And Ruth uses the plural form. She's echoing Boaz's prayer back to him, asking him if he'll allow her to take refuge under his wings. She identifies him as her kinsman redeemer or family redeemer, meaning that he legally had the power to rescue her, to save her from destitution, from a bitter life of poverty. She wants him to cover her, be her covering, to save her, to redeem her life. Look at the way Boaz responds in verse 10. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now I want to pause here because Boaz said something profound. He tells Ruth that she's showing even more family loyalty now than before. Other translations say uh, kindness. You're showing even more kindness now than before. The Hebrew word that Boaz used is chesed. Chesed. It's another way of describing love, but more specifically, loyal love. The word chesed can be difficult to translate into any language because it's, it's a word that combines a lot of ideas into one word. Ideas like uh, generosity, mercy, promise-keeping, 
kindness, loyalty, a deep uh, sense of personal care towards someone else. It's an incredibly powerful word. I put a, a video link in the app notes for you uh, wordy people out there who like to take deep dives. Go ahead and check the app notes out if you want to go deeper into this concept of hesed. But for now, it's important for us to recognize that the kind of loyal love that Boaz is recognizing in Ruth is the same kind of loyal love that God uses to describe himself in Ezekiel 34. God says, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I am slow to anger, he says, and filled with unfailing love, chesed. And I lavish my chesed, my, my love, to a thousand generations. And here in Ruth chapter 3, Boaz tells Ruth that she's showing even more chesed, loyal love, now by choosing him, one of Naomi's family members, an older guy apparently, choosing him so that Naomi's family name would not die, but that it would live on. She's showing even more family loyalty than she did by leaving her homeland behind and following Naomi to a foreign land. What Boaz is essentially saying is, Ruth, I see the character of God in you. That's beautiful. And it's interesting because in the chapter before this one, Naomi praises Boaz for his chesed, for his kindness. She sees the character of God in him. And this week, Boaz has the same kind of praise for Ruth, praising her for her chesed, her family loyalty. He sees the character of God in her. Now, there's another clever play on words in the next verse, in verse 11. Now, don't worry about a thing, Boaz says. Don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. That word virtuous is, is used to describe Ruth. It's the same word used to describe Boaz a chapter earlier in chapter 2. It's a word that means wealth, substance, strength, or virtue. Both Boaz, the Israelite, and Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabite, both of them are people of substance, virtuous people. Their backgrounds couldn't have been more different. Their circumstances couldn't have been more different, but their inward character was the same. Their character was like that of God, full of loyal love. Ruth and Boaz were virtuous people. Now, this is important because I've heard it suggested in some circles that this whole thing between Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor was something kind of covert, covertly sexual, like they did something improper or inappropriate. But I am not convinced that that was the case here, not, not, not by a long shot. And I think that those who want to see this, this scene as some kind of scandalous sexual thing are, are just projecting their 21st century ideas of modern romance onto a story that took place in an ancient honor-based society, and it doesn't fit. There's nothing in the text that indicates that anything inappropriate or improper took, took place that night between the two. Boaz was a man of virtue, 
And throughout the story, we never see him take advantage of Ruth, treat her improperly or dishonor her. In fact, we see him going out of his way to honor her and to protect her honor. And I'll tell you what, if something inappropriate did happen, I can promise you the Bible would have told us. I don't know if you have noticed, but the Bible is not shy about such things. It's honest. There's plenty of examples in the Bible of people doing the wrong thing, even some of its greatest heroes. Hello, King David. Plenty of examples of people doing the wrong thing. The Bible is going to tell your business. It's going to let everybody know. All right? So I don't think that this indicates that anything improper took place. And that's why I believe that when the author tells us that Ruth and Boaz were both virtuous people, upright, virtuous people, we can go ahead and let go of our frivolous desire to turn this beautiful story into some sort of salacious sex scandal, okay? Okay. The next verse will show you what I mean. If Boaz wanted to, he could have taken advantage of Ruth, who was literally throwing herself at his feet in the middle of the night with no one around. He could have skirted the system. He could have claimed her as a wife in that moment of passion. But Boaz is so upright. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I'll talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak. And he spread it out. And he measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. And then he returned to the town. Boaz is a virtuous man. He is a generous man, a man of great character. Even though it's clear that he wants to marry Ruth and he wants to be her family redeemer, he knows that there's another guy in front of him in line. There's a closer relative and by law, it would have been that guy's responsibility to marry Ruth, to take care of her. Boaz knows that despite his desires for Ruth, he's got to do the right thing and go through the proper channels. Verse 16. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, What happened, my daughter? Ruth and Naomi, Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley, and he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. <laughs> I love how real this story is. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. today. And that is how chapter 3 ends, just like that, just with a be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. I love a good cliffhanger. That's our cliffhanger. That's where we find ourselves this week. This chapter ends in uncertainty. Boaz is uncertain if he will ever be able to take Ruth 
as his wife. And Ruth is uncertain of which man is going to become her redeemer by the end of the day. Things are in limbo, but Naomi is certain of one thing. Boaz ain't going to rest until he has settled the matter today. She's sure of it. So where do we find ourselves? Where do we find ourselves in the middle of this story? What's our takeaway? Well, as I was sitting in this chapter and putting myself in the story, I kept going back to that moment where Ruth lays herself before the feet of Boaz. Boaz is very much a Christ figure in this story. He provides. He generously and abundantly provides. He protects. He guards. So much so that Ruth knew that she could seek shelter, seek refuge under his wings, under his covering. I was struck by Pastor Tim's message last week when he described what that meant to to be covered under somebody's wings. He described the picture saying that it was like that of a tiny bird who comes under the refuge to take refuge under the wings of a very large mother bird who is of another breed. Right now, this is where I find myself in Ruth chapter 3. This is what I find myself longing for, covering. Jesus said, How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. Jesus said it. And this is where I find myself. I am Ruth at Boaz's feet. I'm the little bird seeking shelter, and Jesus is my covering, that much larger bird calling back to me, I will cover you with my feathers, I will shelter you with my wings. Psalm 91 says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers, he will shelter you with his wings, he will cover, he will shelter, these are promises. And our God, in his loyal love, in his chesed, he keeps his promises. There's so much heaviness in our world today. We prayed about it earlier today, but there's so much going on, both in our kind of micro worlds and in the world at large. Many of us are like Ruth and Naomi in that we've suffered a devastating loss. Many of us including myself, are still in our year of mourning, even if that loss occurred many years ago. We're still grieving. Many of us are facing economic uncertainty in a rapidly changing world, financial uncertainty. We're not sure what the future is going to look like for us or for our children or, or even for the world. Uncertainty. Many of us feel helpless as we desperately pray for wars to cease and for peace to to come to fruition in our world. Many of us are in our own season of waiting, waiting for answers, waiting for outcomes, waiting for justice to prevail, waiting for the next step to be revealed, waiting to know how this is all going to end. And in my mind, I can hear Naomi's final charge to Ruth echoing loudly, just be patient, my daughter. Until we hear what happens, just be patient, my child. Until we hear what happens. 
literally translated, when she says, be patient, literally translated, she is saying, sit still. Sit still. Many of us are familiar with that scripture in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Well, I thought it might be helpful for us this morning for me to read that reference for you, be still and know that I am God, but to read it with a few scriptures around it for context. Psalm 46, starting at verse 6. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Come and see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. When I hear that verse, be still and know that I am God, I get this picture of some kind of pastoral scene with a a babbling brook and an apple tree, and and it seems kind of serene. Be still and know that I am God. But that's not what this is painting a picture of. Be still and know that I am God while the nations are in chaos. Be still and know that I am God While their kingdoms are crumbling, be still and know that I am God. Our God keeps his promises. So just be patient. In the same way that Boaz poured out his abundant blessings of grain over Ruth and Naomi, our God, our Redeemer, our Provider pours out his abundant blessings of kindness and grace over our lives, exceedingly and abundantly. And in the same way that Ruth could boldly approach the feet of Boaz and make her request known, so we can boldly approach our God in our season of waiting, in our season of uncertainty, in our season of pain, in our season of desperation or fear. We can boldly approach the feet of Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to come boldly before the throne of our gracious God and there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. I need it. I need it. Come boldly because our God is a God of deep compassion and generosity. His loyal love, his hesed endures forever. He is who he says he is, slow to anger and full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we will find rest beneath the shelter of his wings. And oh, how he longs to gather his children there. He wept for this. He longs to gather you under his wings. Be still, be still and know that he is God. As we place ourselves in the middle of the story, as we wait in the tension, as we face the unknown, we can wait with the confidence that Naomi had in Boaz. She knew Boaz was going to work it out and that he would not rest until he did. 
Our God, our Boaz, our provider watches over us and he does not slumber nor does he sleep. Hallelujah. He lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations. His loyal love, his chesed endures forever because it is who he is. It endures forever because he endures forever. He is loyal love and his love endures forever. Somebody say amen. Oh, that we would put our trust in the Lord and speak with the confidence of the psalmist who said in Psalm 138, I praise your name for your hesed. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. For your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. The Lord, it says, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. Not me. The Lord, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. Certainly not you. The Lord, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. For your hesed, your loyal love, O Lord, endures forever. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, let me live, let me dwell, let me abide beneath the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, lead me and guide me to that secret place. Show me where my help comes from. Show me where my strength comes from. Renew me, Lord God. Springs of living water fill my soul, Lord God. Because you are a God of mercy, it is who you are. Because you are faithful, it is who you are. Because you are merciful from generation to generation, it is who you are. And if we don't believe it, Lord, give us a taste. Let us glimpse the character of God that you are slow to anger and you are full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church. And the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.